Welcome to Temple Talks, a new podcast from Temple Israel in Minneapolis, where Jewish wisdom meets our ever-changing world. Join us as we talk with our favorite partners and thought leaders from around town and around the world. We hope these talks will inspire you, challenge you, and give us all new ideas about Judaism, religious life, and social justice. Hi, everyone. This is Rabbi Jason Klein of Temple Israel. I am honored to be here with my colleague and friend, Alicia Stoller. Alicia is the director of the Saul and Carol Zabar Nursery School at the Marlene Meyerson JCC of Manhattan. And full disclosure, Alicia and I used to work together at the Jewish Community Project in Lower Manhattan, and we've known each other for some years now, and it's great to have you here, Alicia. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here. Alicia, one of the wonderful things I've appreciated in our conversations over the years is the opportunity for our early childhood programs to create a sense of, of, um, of safety um, among, among our kiddos, among our learners. And I know this is a year in which there's so much conversation about safety outside of, um, outside of our walls, <laughs> real, virtual, imagined, you know, whatever that is. And maybe that's a place that we could start. Like, what does it mean to create some of the things that inspire um, social, intellectual, emotional safety in the environments in which growth can happen for our kiddos? Yeah, I mean, I think it it always comes back to trust. I think it's about building environments that are that are trusting. And of course, right now we're thinking a lot about um, people's physical safety, but in terms of children's emotional safety, it's so much about relationships, um, and that is something that I think has been striking to us. Um, particularly throughout the last months, is both how, on the one hand, um, really okay most children were as long as they were um, with loving parents at home, as stressful as it has been for parents, um, being in the security of that uh, relationship is extremely protective. Um, Something that I have thought a lot about uh, particularly when everything was was closed down, was um, the study that was done of uh, kids who experienced the Blitz in London, um, and that actually kids who stayed in London with their parents um, did better in the long term emotionally because they were together, um, despite the fact that they were experiencing really horrifying, scary things. Whereas children that were separated and sort of sent off to the country um, to be protected physically um, didn't fare as well emotionally because they they had that um, relationship severed. Um, so I think that that has been really central for us to just all really be reminded of how critical those um, secure relationships are to our health and safety in the long run in every way. Um, And I think as we've come back to school, we've seen that as well, um, that children are coming to school in very different um, ways than they have in the past, that they're wearing masks and they're not able to sort of intermix with other groups of kids. And there are all of these new protocols they have to follow. And they're just so happy to be with their friends (laughs) Um, that it really um, overcomes a lot that they're they're even very young children are really 
happy and willing to do all of these new things because it allows them to be in relationship. Um, and so in every way, whether it's through the relationships at home or uh, at school, those trusting um, encounters with peers, with teachers, uh, in the security of their parents' relationships with them um, are really the, the central piece to, um, to feeling safe, even when very concrete things in their world are, are scary and are not safe. Thank you. Can you say more about new things? I mean, I, I think often as an educator, I like to think that the environments that we create are um, create safety nets. Sometimes we talk about about scaffolding um, as as a terminology for for our learners, um, so that it's not just about being in an environment where someone is comfortable, but an environment in which someone can kind of step a bit beyond that comfort zone, but still within an appropriate boundary. And maybe you could just offer some more insight on, on that. I think, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about sort of risk taking, kind of intellectual and emotional risk taking yeah. in a learning environment. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with the, um, again, that trust, sort of the idea that I can make a mistake or I can, um, I can, I can break something. I can, you know, have a fight with somebody or I can um, do something um, wrong or answer the question in the wrong way, sort of any level of, of mistake that we can make. Um, when you're in a relationship where you feel like your um, best intentions will be presumed and you will be sort of forgiven and allowed to um, come back to the blackboard or come back to the relationship um, and try again um, is again sort of underpinned by that sense of, of trust that develops um, and the idea of that perfection is not the goal. You know, that I think creating sort of a safe learning environment on every level has to sort of start with the idea that, um, that perfection is never the goal, um, that the goal is, exploring and digging deeper and asking questions and then figuring out how to answer those questions or ask new questions, um, getting comfortable with the idea that learning is, is a messy and nonlinear process. Um, I think that that is part of building that sort of wider trusting learning environment that allows for um, both social and intellectual risks um, to become part of the um, kind of learning fabric uh, that children become accustomed to and then sort of take forward throughout their learning lives. Um, Alicia, you are a parent as well. In your experience as a parent and as an educator, uh, are there common pitfalls that people, um, it traps, I suppose, you know, that, pe that people fall into in which they maybe unwittingly are conveying an expectation of per perfection when maybe they don't mean to intend to be doing that. And, um, you know, are there, you know, just things kind of day to day that, that maybe you still are working on, whether as an educator or a parent or things that you sort of see almost universal that we could be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think it almost always, whether it's sort of tripping over that as a teacher or as a parent, it almost always has to do with our own expectations of perfection for ourselves as the adult and a sense of that 
slipping that we then impose it on children. So whether it's because, you know, I, as the teacher, am suddenly worried about losing control of the classroom management or not kind of coming across as the expert in some way or or sort of losing the cohesiveness um, that that then often is the point at which teachers sort of shift into a disciplinary voice um, because uh, because we are worried about our own um, fallibility or our own kind of loss of a sense of control or authority in the room. Um, and of course, a certain amount of authority is part of what makes children feel safe. So we do you know, want children to feel that sense that grownups are in charge, but I think there are also moments where we become so concerned about that slipping or about our own imperfections being revealed um, that we then put that on, on children in the way that we relate to them sometimes. Um, and that we take their successes and their failures as sort of reflections of us. So we want to like push the successes and kind of that perfection because then we feel good about ourselves as, as teachers. And I think as parents, that is very much true as well, whether it's because it manifests differently because our relationships as parents are different with children than teachers' relationships with children. But, you know, whether it's because we were embarrassed about the impending tantrum at the grocery store or, you know, the, uh, you know, our child taking a toy from another child at the playground. It's, you know, usually when we sort of overreact or, um, or convey that message of, um, of uh, expectation that something should have been perfect. I think more often than not, it's coming from sort of our own feelings of uh, how our children's behavior reflects on us, um, which is a very natural way to feel. But I think I can certainly say I think most of the moments as a parent where uh, where I've looked back and thought, you know, I don't actually think I needed to react as strongly as I did in that moment, or I think I conveyed an expectation that was maybe more than my son could actually have managed and wasn't really a fair expectation to put on him that it it generally comes from a moment where I was feeling either exposed or not having as much control or not having kind of the experience reflect on on me the way that I would like it to so I think that's a that's a hard thing about both parenting and teaching is kind of figuring out how to maintain the level of authority that helps children feel safe um, without acting out of a fear of losing control or a fear of their behavior reflecting poorly on us somehow. It's funny how I appreciate you using the word reflecting because I was also thinking that how important it is as the authority, if you will, in either case that, that the parent or the teacher be reflective um, afterward. And, and sometimes I guess, you know, in experiential, sometimes in experiential education, we talk about the importance of reflecting on that experience, not just kind of letting it happen. Maybe it's a reminder that parents and teachers are also learners themselves to kind of go back and say, yeah. okay, let me unpack let me unpack that. You know, especially young children are very much in the moment, but I think that sometimes causes us to um not revisit things with children because we feel like we kind of if we miss the moment we've sort of missed our opportunity but that actually we can go back to things with kids and there's something very powerful even with really young children about a grown-up stepping back and saying you know when that happened the other day I think I didn't 
react the way I wish that I had. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. Or I didn't answer that question the way I wish I had, or I've thought about it a little bit more. And I think maybe I made a mistake, or I think maybe I have a different idea now that the ability to kind of model that going back for children doesn't undermine our authority. It, it actually, I think, enhances that relationship of trust and that sense that our authority is coming from a logical and loving place um, that actually supports the relationship in a positive way and, and models for children the idea that you know we can all revisit, we can all apologize, we can all rethink, we can all you know uh, reflect and come to new and different ideas. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I mean it seems like when we talk about teshuva as a, as a as a Jewish value and this idea of turning around and doing better and really you know, naming it where, where we, where we may have missed the mark. Um, what, you know, what a great way to, to, to model that for children instead of, you know, yeah, you because know, how many times what might, might a parent or an educator say, you need to apologize as opposed to, I'm going to now apologize to you because, because mm-hmm. there's something I think I could have done better um, or, yeah. you know, or, or, or revisit. And maybe there's different degrees of you know, what, what apology looks like or what teshuva looks like. Yeah. Um, you talked a lot about about trust. Um, can you say a little more about the the relationship between between parents and and, and educators? I'm thinking about how um, I don't know. I mean, we could. This is probably the, the humorous version of this. Um, a parent who uh, maybe insists that their child be in the class with so and so, or 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 not with so and so, or da 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 da, and and maybe there's a tension because an educator sees a different piece of of a, of a student and thinks something else would be good for for their growth. How what are some best practices you know for for educators out there who might be listening to this, who, parents are out there who might be listening to this, and in, in terms of um, thinking about that, um, that relationship and each, each having a certain amount of knowledge about the child. Yeah. You know, I think something that we, that's very easy to lose sight of in both sides of that relationship. Um, and that probably we all lose sight of in general in our relationships more than we should is that we are all a little bit different in every situation or sort of context that we're in. And, um, and yet I think we all kind of want to assume that we know people fully or we know people best, but that we're only actually experiencing them through the context in which our relationship exists. Um, and that those things can be different. And so I think a really key piece that often we all miss is that um, it is possible and in fact, common for children in some ways to be different at home and at school. Um, The same way that most of us as adults are probably different in different aspects of our lives, whether it's at home and at work, in different kinds of relationships that we have. Um, We sort of show different parts of ourselves. We feel confident in different ways in different environments. Um, Different people kind of release different things in us, (laughs) positive and negative, um, and everything in between. And, um, And that's true for school and home, too. And I think teachers and parents both have um, a lot of sort of emotional stake in feeling like they know the whole child. And we talk a lot about the value of trying to get to know and appreciate a child in a holistic way. Um, But that if we start from the assumption that um, 
parents know their children best at home and children know their and teachers know their children best at school um, and that those things don't have to completely um, mesh. They don't have to completely uh, be mirrors of one another. Um, that it then allows us to listen to each other and come closer to understanding that whole child. Um, because the fact that a child is maybe a little different in some ways at home and at school um, tells us all something about how that child is navigating those different environments. And I think there's often a tendency sometimes for teachers to feel like if a parent isn't seeing the same things that they're seeing, that there's an element of denial um, and sort of not wanting to see something, which can certainly be there to some degree, um, but is not always necessarily the case. Sometimes it is genuinely that they're seeing something different. Um, and for parents, there can be a real sense of if a teacher is not seeing the same child that they're seeing either um, why is that? Like what's wrong about the environment that's not allowing, you know, the child that I see to be there or, um, or that it's somehow misconstrued or, or uh, misunderstood and their child's not really being seen. And then we can't actually have a conversation about who that child is and why that, you know, difference is happening. Whereas if we start out by kind of acknowledging that we're seeing different um, aspects of the whole child and that together we can sort of put that into a more cohesive picture that can support the child better across both contexts. It allows us to listen to each other better. I think it allows teachers and parents to be less defensive um, because we can start from the point of acknowledging that we both have um, valuable insight to bring to the table. Mm. Thanks, thank you. Something I know that, um... Um, I know we're both passionate about and have talked about since the earliest days of our relationship um, are, are, you know, educating for a diverse world and making every learner feel valued and visible in the classroom and, and using the resources we have to, um, to have them see the world through um, um, through, through thoughtful eyes in which this idea of like a Fitzalem Elohim, the idea of humanity being created in the, the divine image is, um, is front and center. Um, I, so what am I trying to say? I, you know, you talked about context. And so I'm wondering, like, you and I have talked about, um, you know, teaching children about gender, sexuality, race, like from some of the earliest ages, um, how much has has how much is just the same and how much has changed since since um since Memorial Day since the murder of George Floyd um how you know how have you felt that are there things that you feel like are just the same and have been kind of an affirmation of what you've been doing all along as an educator are there um are there um new things that are kind of like coming up for you to think about about um about putting B'Tselem Elohim front and center about doing the work of unpacking racism and doing anti-racism work? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we, we experienced a sort of um, overdue, but kind of rapid ripening in some ways that, that I would say what I've seen the most in terms of a shift from 
from the stance of kind of where parents and teachers are in all of this um, is um, a readiness and a willingness to think and talk about how we have these conversations with, with children in meaningful ways from a young age. That, that some of the um, hesitation that I've experienced with parents often in the past about feeling like these issues are um, too uh, sensitive or too overwhelming or too old for young children um, and, and sort of the idea that young children should be allowed to kind of be quote unquote innocent of these issues from existing at all, um, which is, you know, a pushback um, on talking about some of these things with kids that um, has always been com pretty common um, in my experience to date, but that has, has sort of softened or like ripened where um, parents now I'm finding are less worried about that. They're less worried about sort of overwhelming or scaring their kids. And they're a little bit more open to thinking about the alternative consequence as the thing to worry about, thinking about the question of what happens if I don't talk to my child about any of these things. Um, and that that question has started to resonate in a way that has opened up particularly um, white parents and parents who are in from more privileged positions in a variety of ways, kind of willingness to engage in these conversations and to think about how they actually can have them with young children from an early age and what kinds of experiences um, are important even for very young children, that it's it's sort of softened the, the ability to have those conversations and, and created a different readiness for them. Um, I think that where we continue to have a lot of work to do and what is gonna be the next real phase in, in this, um, in terms of thinking about whether those conversations, how much impact and how much meaning they can have um, has to do with how we, as parents, navigate um, the comfort of our actual um, experiences and, and our children's exposures to, to difference. But I think there's a very natural tendency for most of us to sort of gather the communities of people that feel similar to us, that feel comfortable because um, they don't um, push us, you know, out of our comfort zones. Um, and that's the hard step to take beyond the conversations. I think we've gotten to a point where parents are more comfortable having the conversations, reading the books, um, you know, thinking about what questions to raise with their kids, even, you know, bringing kids to protests and things like that. Um, but it's then the next layers, the, the things that come into your day-to-day -day life choices as a parent. So the way that it impacts how we decide where to send our children to school, how we decide, you know, what, um, where we're going to live, how we decide, um, what we are comfortable with them being um, experiencing in their day-to-day -day lives, how that impacts our privilege and our sense of our ability to sort of pass that privilege along to our children connects really deeply to parents' desire to protect their children. And I think that that is where sort of the next phase of work is, is in um, 
how we as parents sort of integrate these things, not only into our conversations with our children, but actually into our choices and our modeling. I think it's worth stating for our listeners, since this is a podcast, that um, both of us would look white to most anyone walking down the street and, um, you know, experience our own, you know, white skin privilege um, as well. And I, I appreciate, um, really appreciate what you're saying, because I, I think like, you know, we've, we, we're have we talking a lot about Temple, Temple Israel this year, um, about about amplifying voices of people of color and... And yes, I think the pandemic itself has also challenged us with so much thing, so many things happening at a distance. Um, and yet, like, it sounds like you're talking about the boundary between, like kind of crossing the boundary between perhaps being a, um, maybe a white parent with a white child who's, who's adding certain books to their collection versus actually actively saying we're committed to, um, to a social group, to a neighborhood, to a school where people are going to, um, that's not necessarily going to be majority white or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think, and that that's why we talk about this as systemic, right? That it's, it's there is both a responsibility on us as individual parents um, in our choices with our children. Um, and at the same time, each of those choices is part of a wider a wider system that makes those choices very fraught. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Alicia, um, speaking of kind of identities and and and, and communities, um, um, I grew up um, Jewish, um, connected to certain Jewish communities. Um, you grew up not religiously Jewish, but I believe had a variety of connection to to Jewish culture. Um, and I was wondering if maybe you could say a little bit more about your background and journey and how that relates to being a director of uh, of a of a um, an early childhood program at the Jewish Community Center. Wow. So yeah. Small question. Small, um, I, small question. Um, so I mean, I really grew up with a very um, a sort of mishmash of experiences on on all levels, kind of cult, cultural and spiritual. I mean, I um, my uh, my dad's family has Jewish roots, but grew up in a very sort of secular way. My mom's family was not Jewish. Um, I grew up with um, kind of both of those um, lineages and value sets, um, being a part of my experience growing up in a sense of both my own cultural identity and, and heritage and, um, uh, and, uh, and kind of how that related to, um, other people around me. I also grew up primarily in a, um, New York neighborhood where, uh, you know, a lot of my friends at a, uh, actually went to, um, a school that was, um, Episcopal in affiliation, 
but I would say probably I had more Jewish friends at that Episcopal school than anything else um, growing up in New York. And then at the same time also had uh, both of my, my parents are from Minnesota. And so I would also spend time in uh, quite a bit of time in the Midwest um, when I was young. And, and so also had this kind of like uh, East Coast, <laughs> Midwest, um, dichotomy in my experience as well. So, um, so I experienced a lot of complexity, I think in my growing up, my dad is also, although he's, um, uh, the Jewish side of my family is on his side. He's actually a, a um, scholar who primarily, uh, studies the development of Christianity. So there's a lot of, a lot of complexity there. Um, and I think all of that to say that, um, I think the primary way in which that influenced me was that it made me really value complexity. It made me value the idea that different perspectives could shed light on the same truth from different places, um, that, that we're all seeking meaning and connection, and that, um, that there's a lot of commonality within difference. Um, my dad would often refer to sort of different, different religious traditions as being windows on the truth. Um, and I think that is something that I've really carried through that has allowed me in various contexts, including as the director of the Jewish nursery school, um, to both understand very deeply where people, um, how people root themselves in their cultural and religious identities and how important those things um, can be in every facet of our lives. Um, and at the same time, how for me, there's sort of never been one right answer in that. Um, so it, it has allowed me to kind of move through different communities in a way that both um, sort of appreciates and respects um, the specificity of those also um, seeing them as kind of part of a, a tapestry. Um, I had a, a Reggio inspired school um, at the JCC and I once a long time ago was doing a professional development um, workshop with a Reggio educator who talked about learning as coming into complexity. Um, and I think that in many ways is how I think about all of my work, whether it's sort of the risk taking you were asking about at the beginning or um, or how we engage with kids on complicated topics like um, faith and race and gender and all of those things, um, that it's it all kind of comes down for me to um, coming into complexity, developing greater and greater comfort with complexity in the world. You know, if I had to ask that question all over again, I might have described <laughs> myself as having an Ashkenazi Jewish background, but I might have asked you to describe your background rather than to start to say say what maybe you weren't or might be or something <laughs> like that. Um, so, so, um, so I appreciate you letting me be self-reflective in this moment. Yeah, when I have to say it in shorter words. <laughs> um, somebody once asked uh, my dad what he... Um, believes and a friend of his actually sort of spoke up on his behalf and quoted, um, I think it's Keats, I hope I'm getting that right, um, and said he believes in the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of imagination. Um, and so when I have to boil it down to sort of a nutshell of what my 
um, experience and upbringing has led me to that that's it I believe in in um, the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of imagination that's beautiful that's beautiful so I think you may have given me my segue as we move toward wrapping up which is um, your parents are from Minnesota yes. <laughs> okay, everyone for, for they're on a hayride Okay, I knew this actually before we had this call. This wasn't complete revelation. In fact, when I told Alicia that I was going to be coming to work for Temple Israel, one of the first things she says is, do you need a dentist or something like that, right? Or maybe maybe the friend of your family was no longer practicing, but we figured he he clearly knew other dentists. <laughs> um, he, he was, it like, was it the dude? I'm trying to remember. The dentist. Um. Wasn't my family friend who's yeah, we have a, my grandfather was had a very close friend of the family who's a dentist and he was on the Minnesota Board of Dentistry and uh, yeah. Okay, sorry, maybe that otherwise was I'm, otherwise I have a family of, of teachers and engineers, basically. Got it, got it. I, I, I really do like my dentist here. So that's <laughs> that's great. Um, but and I know you haven't been here in a little while, um, given the, the current state of the world. Um, but will you Will you say a little bit? I mean, this could be as serious or as playful as you want, whether it's based on kind of stereotypes of New Yorkers or um, Minnesotans or, or, or just, you know, cultural stuff that you've drawn from over the years. Is there, is there you know, what can, what can we in Minneapolis, in the, in the cities, in, in the Midwest, um, learn from, from the culture of, of, of New York and, and, and early childhood? You know, what, what, do you take from the, the part of you that's so connected to here, to, to Minnesota, into, into your work in New York? I think, I, I, it's funny, I, my mom used to always say that she felt like she spent her life trying to convince people in New York that Minnesota wasn't the stereotype they thought of it as, and uh, convince people in Minnesota that New York wasn't the stereotype they thought of it as. So um, that was probably another piece of my like complicated <laughs> intersecting um, experience, but um, I think for me, the um, it's very nuanced. Like there are definitely things that I root myself in that I think fundamentally, if I reflect on them are probably Midwestern values um, that, um, there's a sense of um, there's a sense of of community that is in both places that I think is powerful, but through different in textural ways that I think um, you know the the um, the idea of sort of how we band together. I think there's something. Um, Minnesota, when I was a kid, actually, I think got probably more snow and, and more cold than it currently does. But um, I do think there's something about like having to get through a cold winter together <laughs> on a regular basis um, that, you know, there's a sense of looking out, actively looking out for one another. And um, and that is definitely something I think I attribute to, to sort of my Minnesota roots. Um, also, the, I think, you know, even in... Um, the cities, which um, 
people in New York sometimes don't fully realize exist in Minnesota, um, <laughs> that it's not all farmland. Um, uh, but even there, I think there is also um, a connection to nature that's really important in Minnesota, um, whether it's because, you know, the um, you're, you know, constantly in proximity to bodies of water, <laughs> even, even when you're in the city. Um, and, uh, and very quickly sort of out in, in real um, natural environments. I think there's something really powerful about that. It's something that I really directly experience when I am back um, in Minnesota. And I think found particularly powerful when I started to bring my son um, to Minnesota, because I think the thing I would notice the most was that um, uh, it made me very aware of how much I say no to him in the day-to-day -day life in New York, not because of anything he was doing, but because of just the restrictions of busy city life that, you know, he, whether it's like, be careful, there's traffic. No, don't run, watch out for all the people on the street. There's a lot of, sort of limits. Um, and there was something really powerful the first time we were um, in Minnesota where he was sort of old enough to kind of um, really go off and play to be able to say like, just don't go down the driveway. But other than that, you can just play. Um, and you can, you can be independent in a different way because um, because of that freedom and because of kind of being in that more natural environment. Um, so I think that's really important too. I think in terms of New York, um, I think there's, there's a creative energy and intensity to New York um, that has always really shaped me, sort of being in a place that is um, so shaped by being... Um, being a home of, of arts and creativity and people who are sort of coming to find themselves and um, and pursue dreams, sort of the, you know, those are kind of stereotypes of New York, but they are very much true. It creates a kind of intensity of creativity and, um, and an energy that I think is really invigorating and that sort of pushes um, culture and intellectual curiosity forward in a way being 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 in an environment that is that is very diverse um you know as much as we are we have our neighborhoods don't necessarily always feel diverse um you know the 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 level of diversity that the city does offer i think definitely um is a huge shaping factor growing up here um, and then I think the thing that's off, that often is missed is the, the community piece that sort of I mentioned about Minnesota is also actually a very powerful part of New York. And I think one that often goes unmissed, that there is something about, um, or goes missed rather, that there's something about how New Yorkers look out for each other um, that is not quite as obvious, but that's very powerful and, and um you know, that New Yorkers will, we're very efficient, <laughs> but, but we do, we do take care of each other, you know, and it's the, the like classic example people often use is like, if you're walking by like an accident or something that's happened on the, the streets in New York, um, New Yorkers will walk past, which sometimes looks callous to people, but it's only once we've made the quick assessment that the situation's already being addressed and taken care of. And I've noticed that like so-and-so's on their cell phone and somebody is sitting next to the person on the sidewalk and the ambulance is coming down the street. 
Um, and we do that probably faster than most because we do everything faster than most. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but all of those things are happening, right? There is somebody sitting with the person on the side of the road and there is somebody calling, you know, and the, like we do, we take care of each other. And if that's not already in motion, New Yorkers will stop and, and immediately, you know, five people will gather around somebody um, who needs help. Um, and I think that is there, the, the idea of kind of anonymous people looking out for one another. Uh, really um, powerful in New York too that maybe isn't isn't something we're known for but I think is very very true of um, of this the heart of the city hmm. that's maybe a, a full circle to where we started with safety yeah. and the idea of you know even stepping out of our our homes um, even when it's not COVID times right there's a certain sense of maybe going beyond a comfort zone and knowing who that there are people to take care of one another um, wherever we are is so powerful. Yeah. Um, Alicia, if, um, if anyone wanted to, to read anything you're writing, are you blogging anywhere or, or is a lot of that mostly internal at work now? Or what's <laughs> these days I'm not doing as much as I like to do because most of my uh, writing these days has to do with sort of safety protocols and um, things like that. Well, um, but <laughs> typically in a typical year um i do uh, write something to our families every week that's up on the nursery school website um at the jcc um but I, I haven't been able to do that as much as i would like to this year um since we've been a little bit more in if constant crisis management mode a little less reflecting than i than i typically like to be able to do all right. So maybe next school year, God willing, if people go to, I believe it's nurseryschool.mmjccm, lots of M's as in Manhattan and Mary and Marlene Meyerson, nurseryschool.mmjccm.org. Um, they right. find uh, some of your writing, which I've always been so inspired by. It's thoughtful. Alicia, thank you so much for um, thank you. I know we're both kind of new to this podcast thing, so I, I appreciate getting to experience it with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Temple Talks. Any questions or comments can be directed to tmoss at templeisrael.com, and I will help them find their proper destination. And if you're also the parent of an adolescent, I recommend that you listen to episode number five between Rabbi Zimmerman and our congregant, but also psychiatrist, Dr. Gail Bernstein, as she addresses similar issues around parenting and educating for that age level. Thanks again for listening. All the best.